finding you know mentors, finding those with tra trajectory. You don't always have to find the person that's accomplished 30 years of work. You know, you can a lot of times see uh, those sparks of brilliance of people on that very steep trajectory. Very important point of expansion and growth um, at any stage of the company is, is just don't lose sight of your core business. Super excited to introduce Kevin Hart, the founder and CEO of Eventbrite, and of course an avid entrepreneur. He accomplished so much in, in so little time. Of course, started three businesses, advises so many others, started Connect Group, which was one of the first internet providers for hotel chains, has started Zoom, which was a money transfer company, and of course Eventbrite, which we all use and love today. So with that, let's welcome Kevin to Zerb Soapbox. So Kevin, welcome. I just uh, want to kind of start off with with this reoccurring theme. You've accomplished so much, and uh, it, it was it was in your words. I think you said once that you're always learning from entrepreneurs, from investors, from people that are building product out there. That that was sort of the the trend across all these startups, starting you know back in Stanford, right? So let's go back to the very first startup, right? Connect Group. That was the very first. You came out of Stanford. You had this idea, and the idea was, you know, to provide in internet for hotel chains. Such a big idea. It requires, you know, you got to pitch to hotel chains. You got to create infrastructure. How how did you get that going? And kind of who was your teacher or <laughs> a person you looked up to, the advisor there? Well, thanks. First, I should say thank you to Dimitri. Thank you, Zerb, for for hosting us and uh, going off on a little tangent. Zerb is a design firm and. As we all know, the the new web is really driven by design. You see the the leading companies out there, uh, big and small. Whether it's uh, you know whether it's what Steve Jobs is doing is a design-driven uh, business in in this new era of you know human-computer interaction, and also you know say Jack Dorsey, just a great product person, and it's really around design. UX, UI, um, such an important part of that, and um, I'm thrilled to be here at, at CERB. Back to the back to the question. Uh, the, you know, really how we got that started was, you know, we we were pretty young. We were just out of college, and we didn't really know what we were doing. But we, uh, you know, we had a pretty bright team. We had uh, we actually had four founders, uh, all out of Stanford, a couple really great bright engineers. And our tactic there, it, it's a hard market to solve, uh, and, and it's a hard customer to sell to. And it's not one of those things, I think we kind of stumbled into it almost haphazardly rather than saying, okay, what's the, what's the best market where we can get in really quickly, grow customers fast, uh, you know, check off all these different boxes that you know, maybe many premeditated or, uh, entrepreneurs will, will do. And in this case, we, we just said, hey, this is, I think we haphazardly came across the opportunity or or were um, you know kind of stumbled back into it because somebody asked us to help build a connectivity for hotels. We approached the uh, the head of one of the Hilton uh, one of the GMs for a, a set of Hiltons, and we were lucky to wire up one of the Hiltons here in the in the South Bay. 
And that was key. I mean, we, what we did is we basically kind of bum-rushed this great general manager who was forward-thinking. He was here in the Valley. He knew his customers wanted internet access. Um, he was excited about technology and the boom that was happening in the late 90s. Uh, so we made him an advisor, he invested some, and he became our kind of marquee customer and helped us get into uh, a few more hotels. I have to say it was, our, it was our Y Combinator, if you're all familiar with Y Combinator, it was kind of our Y Combinator experience before the Y Combinator. Um, we, you know, we, we got this thing going really fast uh, and we had a, a very lucky, uh, or we had an exit, a very quick exit to a company called LodgeNet if you go into hotels, they're the ones that uh, still to this day provide you know, the movies, although that business must be just getting uh, really disrupted by the fact that you can watch any film through, through streaming Netflix or iTunes or so on. Um, but we, from the time we, we'd been working on it slightly before, but we incorporated in, in April and sold the business in October of 2008. It was, um, it, it was a whirlwind. Uh, and then so it was what, 10 million? Nine, nine and a half uh, it was what, what happened after the uh, yeah after you know run up in stock and uh, it was an all stock deal. Uh, it, it was roughly around ten million dollars. So nothing to retire on, but again something to kind of uh, get comfortable with, start investing as well, right? And that's where you kind of turned turned uh, the road a little bit. You kind of started investing, and Peter Thiel was a friend of yours from from school from Stanford. Uh, Peter and I were both involved in, in student government. He was more on the, the libertarian conservative side. I was more on the liberal side, but we, we actually got along. I had, you know, what's interesting is a lot of the PayPal mafia are these conservatives, and I think I was maybe their token liberal friend or something. Uh, but we reconnected. Uh, Peter had been, he, he originally went to a uh, law firm. He, he went to law school, went to a law firm, went um, into the, the uh, derivatives trading business and came out to start Teal Capital, which was a hedge fund, uh, and got a tiny little office on Sand Hill Road because he heard, you know, if you have that Sand Hill Road office, uh, that, that's a very important thing. And he started doing hedge fund investing. And meanwhile, very observant, very big brain, saw what was happening in the late 90s and started investing in, in tech companies. And um, you know, the rest is history. Max Lepkin came to him and, and said, you know, I want to start this, this company. It was originally a mobile security company. Uh, but, that was, uh, but they soon discovered that, that mobile wasn't at that, that means of maturity. And, and that kind of speaks to that first lesson of being very agile and, and switching direction. And they actually switched direction quite a number of times. They did it. In, in literally a six or eight month period, uh, and by the fall of 99 had launched, it was actually October of 99, launched PayPal, what it was today. And by, um, you know, three months later, I think I was uh, user number 22 or 23, and a few months later they had a million um, consumers, which at the time was, was, was quite a few, and then it just rocketed uh, from there. But Peter stepped out of that investing side and, and into a full-time operating role running, running PayPal. I, um, I had the chance to invest and, and just knew Peter as this big brain and people I wanted to be around. And, and so I think that's really the first lesson is to find those uh, really bright people. And it's uh, 
finding you know mentors, finding those with tra trajectory. You don't always have to find the person that's accomplished 30 years of work. You know, you can a lot of times see uh, those sparks of brilliance of people on that very steep trajectory. And uh, so staying close to that PayPal mafia has been a lot of what have, I've built my career on, basically. So you started investing. PayPal was one of your investments, right? Yes. Peter came to you, and you guys, how did you guys know PayPal was a good investment there? Was it, were you kind of guided by some, by Peter's thinking, or what was the... Uh, it, you know, in, in hindsight, it was really the team uh, because the original idea I, inve I, I invested in in FieldLink, which was it, which was the original PayPal's original name, and then it was changed to Confinity, and then it was changed to PayPal. Um, okay. You know, and FieldLink was uh, actually smart tokens and security for uh, mobile devices, and then they moved to Confinity and this new model, which was transferring money by then the leading. Uh, semi-smartphone at the time, which was the Palm Pilot, and transferring money through the the IR port, and they realized that you had a constraint of geography that you couldn't pass. Uh, you know that that people had to be present, and and you had to have that density of users to be able to do this. Uh, and they had based the accounts on email addresses, which you know is to this day is still a lot of the brilliance of PayPal is that you don't need this complicated. Uh, email or, or account number, you have a simple email address, and they saw people start to take, you know, then they started calling it PayPal, and, and they saw people transferring money between accounts and moved to the web. When they moved to the web, they didn't know where they were going to, they were going to uh, actually find their traction, and the customers found them. And, and what happened is that eBay was that perfect marketplace that at the time was booming, but people were 100% exchanging. Uh, checks through the or sending checks through the mail, and Peter had always talked about you know one of his other thesis of, of PayPal and money, uh, financial services business in general is that there's a um, there's a premium you know a time sensitivity where people will pay a premium for moving money really fast, and and that was really the basis of PayPal. PayPal uh, logos started showing up in eBay auctions and. You know, one small crowd at, at PayPal was saying, like, they can't do that. They can't take our logo and start using this for auctions. It wasn't meant for that. And luckily, you know, the, the bright minds over there prevailed uh, by noticing that that uh, this is a great audience, a perfect audience to, uh, to to adopt the product where you have two unknown parties, a merchant that needs wants to collect money and a, and a, a buyer uh, that can pay securely. And the rest is history there. So that was 2001. Around 2001, you had uh, started Zoom, a new, a new company there. And I, I can see right you're thinking right at that moment, right? You're, you're invested into PayPal, the PayPal, PayPal business model. Zoom is a money transfer company, right? It's more it's like Western Union, but it's what, better, faster. That was the idea? Yeah, so we uh, really what, what we started towards the end of 2001, Alan Braverman and I, uh, my former business partner, was we, we looked at, at trends. Um, you know, Mike, Mike Moritz had once, I had gotten to meet with him, and, and he, from Sequoia Capital, and he had once said that, you know, look for industries that build, you know, industries upon industries. And, you know, at back, way back then, Netscape was something that browser had opened the door to uh, such a, a massive industry. Um, or Cisco and the router, or now we see with Facebook and the ecosystem that it's created. Uh, 
in, in that sense, we saw PayPal was exploding. And you know, at that time, we saw two things happening. We saw Google really taking off. And we were saying, well, should we do something in, in um, I don't know, advertising or something, or, or in payments with PayPal? And we had encouraged uh, David Sachs, the head of product, to really focus on building a, a payments API. And he hired um, a mutual, or he hired somebody I had introduced to him, Dave McClure, uh, to head up the developers program. And probably a lot of you know Dave McClure. So the idea there was that PayPal was starting to build a platform. Uh, and, and, and that's very important, as we can see, you know, Microsoft in the 90s uh, built a platform and attracted the most, you know, attracted that weight of developers that just sucked the air out of all the other competitors over time. Uh, today we see Apple and the iPhone or Android uh, device, or we see um, Facebook and its ecosystem. And we looked at, at PayPal as a payments platform, and it was primarily focused around auctions. And we were saying, what else could we build on, on top of, of PayPal? And we built actually six or seven different payment apps. And actually, the, the early beginnings of Eventbrite you know, came from those different kind of brainstorms and hacks and, and things of that nature. But Zoom uh, came out of that as well. You like Netflix a lot, right? I remember you talking about Netflix at the time. And you were kind of trying to model it or look up to Netflix at the moment. Yeah, so Netflix is a great company. Uh, it's a extremely well-run company. Reed Hastings is uh, just a, a great company operator, great vision, and Netflix was very quantitative. That was another lesson that you know we see a lot today is really applying metrics, uh, quantitative. You know principles to business. You know you look at the business almost as you know I'd done a little research in the lab. I'd done some time my a stint of of research in a in a research lab, and it is like running experiments, uh, and and testing and trying lots of different things and seeing what works. And and Netflix uh, had you know a wonderful business, uh, but also was very disciplined in how they. Uh, Spent in different channels and acquired customers, and found you know that they could acquire customers for an average of forty-five dollars, and that through different mechanisms of delighting the customer, building a great product, uh, reduced churn to sub five percent. And what that meant is that they could acquire a customer for forty-five dollars, and and on average that customer would be worth three hundred or so over the lifetime, and. And that's a fantastic business. Now that sounds very boring, you know, if you just look at the numbers, um, but you can break it down to a number side, and then, but you still have to stay grounded in, in, you know, what the folks here at Zurb are doing is trying to build these delightful, great, or what we're trying to do at Eventbrite is build a, a really delightful, great product experience. So you're a metrics guy. You're just, did you use metrics early on at Zoom? to drive your decision-making? Yeah, so we call Zoom, and, and to tell you a bit about Zoom, Zoom competes with, with Western Union. Uh, we help people send money to their families overseas. Uh, and we, we call it an, uh, I don't know, we, we, yeah, we call it an online to offline service. You basically send money online, and we partner with, with different banks or retailers in foreign countries and, and disperse cash or direct-to-bank account or so on. Um, and that's actually, we call it a quasi-subscription model because although you don't subscribe and money is sent automatically every month or you get billed every month, uh, it's, it's very coordinated with paydays. Uh, so on the 1st and the 15th, 
when uh, when somebody gets their paycheck, they as as part of their kind of duty to, to family, they send their money very religiously, you know, very methodically back there. And we could actually map this. We could map the the cohorts and the repetition rate and the churn rate based on that. Even though um, you know you didn't have as nice of a model as a um, as a as a Netflix, which you know they know every month they collect their fifteen dollars, and you know exactly when somebody's churned. So we called Zoom. We call Zoom and Eventbrite kind of extreme uh, subscription services because both have a lot of repetitive qualities. In in the case of Eventbrite, you uh, are merchants or sellers or organizers are holding events. You know sometimes daily, sometimes monthly, weekly, and sometimes yearly. In understanding how each of those cohorts or each of those groups behaves and when they churn is, is very important and the same with Zoom. I want to leave some time for Eventbrite so we'll just kind of move on to Eventbrite. There's tons of stuff in Zoom I want to talk to but Eventbrite, how, how did the idea come about and how did you know the market was there, that there was an exciting market there? Well it, it came about, I mean it's, uh, you know I was just talking to some folks earlier and, and you know we're, a lot of these ideas have been recycled and, and you know, uh, um, Steve Bennett's here, he remembers Activa and a, and a lot of the companies from the 90s. There was literally a slew of Eventbrite light companies uh, that raised a lot of capital and didn't make it for, for various reasons. Uh, and, and the notion of Eventbrite is that we're democratizing ticketing, that you can have this, you know, SaaS cloud-based service that just makes it super easy for anyone to publish an event and start selling. And it's a classic disrupt from below model. Uh, that we made it as easy to start selling tickets or uh, organize events uh, as it is to publish a blog. And, and when that happens, we just saw this blossoming of all this great content and things happening. Uh, and, and what's happened now is that we, um, you know, we like to look at ourselves. I talk a lot about you know, being a historian of technology, and we look a lot of, of what's happened in the past. We look at models. Um, admire what Mark Benioff did of starting out in the SMB market with Salesforce.com and the classic example of, of Tom Siebel uh, dis being very dismissive. Uh, Tom Siebel was selling Siebel software to the Fortune 1000 and it was cost millions of dollars and expensive to integrate and you have these long contracts and he, he looked at, uh, at Salesforce.com and dismissed it as, as this you know, toy. He, called, he used to call it a toy. Uh, meanwhile, they the, they gained this momentum, they gained this mass and scale, moved up um, the stack, and you know now a primarily displaced uh, displaced um, Siebel in in so many accounts and have grown into the mainstream. And that's the notion here with Eventbrite is that we're um, we're disrupting and we're we're entering the market, and we're moving up. The interesting thing about our market, though, is that you know still by far the our business and our gross profits and so on are driven by you know the so-called long tail. It's it's a great great business. Uh, it transcends borders. We do about 20 percent of our business outside the U.S. and um, and we don't want to forget those roots. We don't want to. And, and that's a very as we grow and scale the business. That's a big challenge of the business. Is you don't want to. Um, we don't want to all of a sudden start saying we're going to serve the the giants, the AT&T ballpark. Uh, because the requirements there are very complex and different, and it would come at the cost uh, of our core business because we just 
don't have the resources to dedicate to both. So one very important point of expansion and growth um, at any stage of the company is, is just don't lose sight of your core business. How did you actually know that the market was there? The idea sounded great, right? But then what kind of research or what, what did you do to kind of prove that the market was there? We, uh, it, it was really challenging with Eventbrite versus Zoom. So Zoom is a classic business where it has a, it has a, a clear TAM. Uh, if you don't know the three TLAs, the three-letter acronyms, TAM stands for Total Addressable Market. And, you know, that's something that an investor like Sequoia loves and, you know, has to see. Sequoia is more of a TAM investor. They want to see that a company can get to a billion in revenues uh, or has that a capability to do that. And in the space of international money remittance, you have um, central banks around the world recording all the money being sent um, through remittances. And, and it actually, the numbers are, are staggering. It, it outstrips all foreign aid and, and is sometimes, you know, larger than the GDP of these companies or countries or so on. Um, the, the remittance flows are in the, you know, few hundreds of billions and then you take, you know, whatever your revenue take rate is. Um, Western Union actually takes between 12%, you know, and, and they still only have 20% of the market. So what I'm painting here is that you, you have a very clear market size, say 350 billion in gross remittances. Uh, you have a certain take rate, X percent, and that's your revenue number. Um, of course, you have to slim it down because not everyone's online at this point uh, and, and, and so on. But you know, we could very clearly demonstrate the market size, the TAM in that case. In the case of long tail events, it's very, very difficult. It's easy to size up the traditional ticketing market, uh, but the long tail market was more of a leap of faith. It was just that feeling that this is something big and it's more of a, um, you know, a business that, yeah, went more on gut instinct. We are now seeing and as we move up, up, up the stream, we, you know, we're becoming more, uh, you know, more and more confident in that. But I think for lack of, if you ever go into a business where you're not sure of the market size, I think that's where it also is very uh, helpful to bootstrap. So we weren't sure how big the market would be. We bootstrapped the company because we didn't want to end up with a venture overhang and found that we were in a niche market. So we actually spent our first two years uh, not just putting a little bit of our own money in, taking no salaries, and, and bootstrapping the business. Uh, it also has that great byproduct of being very focused on profits and growth and the customer and, and, and everything else. So we got the business profitable, uh, and, and we could then get that sense that there's a, there's a massive opportunity here. So you, you launched Eventbrite very bare bones, right? You, you, the very first version of it came out. Why not put more features into it, right? More, more uh, sparks, more, more whistles? And yeah, I'm a, I, great question. I'm, you know, I'm a big fan of, of launching early and fast, and, and there are different you know, schools of thought there. But the, again, in that the world is the Petri dish, the internet is the Petri dish, it, to, to get something live, to get just the base functionality out there uh, and get people using it and understand how they're using it and, and um, what works and what doesn't work is I'm, I'm a huge fan of. I think, you know, I love the, uh, I do some investing with one of the co-founders of YouTube, Javed Karim, and so I've had to hear the founding of YouTube story maybe like 500 times. Um, <laughs> but I love it. I get like goosebumps every time I hear it. But they started, they actually 
launched as a dating site. Um, they were nerds, so they launched on February 14th, you know, because they had no dates. Uh, and they, they um, you know, figured that people would post video profiles and that you'd find those profiles. And, and it wasn't really working. They were seeding Craigslist, trying, they were going to pay women to post video profiles and tried all these different things. And then all of a sudden they saw somebody, uh, somebody had posted a, a video of a plane taking off right overhead. They were sitting on the hood of a car and this plane takes off. And all of a sudden there's this rush of, of traffic and you know, to see that video and, and something clicked. And, and I, I think they're that classic um, case of, of iteration where they you know, very quickly started saying, well, this is, uh, you know, post anything video site and on a daily basis would, would make modification based on user behavior. And by the summer of, of 2005, you know, they, were, they had about 1,000 registered users. And by the fall, you know, it was exponentially larger. Sequoia did the round and, you know, the rest is history. So I, I think that if you would have sat on uh, building a, a video dating site for a long time until you felt it was kind of right and then launched it, you, you would have probably, you, you, I know you would have missed the whole, uh, that, that whole revolutionary market. And I've seen it happen. I've, I've had friends who are great engineers and, and great, uh, you know, had great vision and literally like launch when they're down to their last dollar of funding uh, with that expectation that it's going to be a big boom. And really when you launch, it's really the start. Um, you know, you, the clock really only then starts ticking. So getting things live and, and understanding having that runway to, to work there is critically important. So you, you launched it, it became very popular. Very recently I hear people talking about this head-on competition with Ticketmaster. <laughs> Bloggers all over the place. Just Eventbrite is going to take be the future Ticketmaster. Ticketmaster is going to go down. They have too many fees. Eventbrite. Talk about you know. Are you trying to take on Ticketmaster? Are you trying to compete with them? What's the, what's the thinking there? You know, all in all in due time. We don't do a lot of the the core business of Ticketmaster, which is reserved seating. We will be doing that. We will be rolling it out. But again, we we want to roll it out at the pace that that we feel comfortable. We've got a you know, lifelong of, of work just capturing the long tail. Like we've seen that the business translate very well internationally. As I mentioned earlier, we do about 20% of our business. So now we're, uh, and actually our latest funder, Tiger Global, has a very international perspective uh, and has been helping us look at all the exciting markets, Europe, Latin America, Asia, and, and so on. And so we're, we're you know, you, you follow the path of least resistance and right now that's taking us internationally, it's taking us um, into many verticals, it's taking us into certain music and entertainment verticals where, where Ticketmaster competes, like we're, we're an ideal solution for festivals. In fact, we did one leg of the Warp Tour, we did the Ventura Stop last weekend, and we sold 62% more tickets than Ticketmaster did. And that's just, uh, and we were, you know, I was kind of biting my nails like, you know, got to be Ticketmaster on this. They're, they're the behemoth. They've got the distribution and the voice and the brand and everything else. And then seeing that, you know, uh, through social media distribution, through uh, great easy-to-use service, a delightful service, through um, great customer service, through lower fees, we, um, you know, we just, we, we really nailed it on that one. So we're, 
we're creeping up there, I would say. It's not going to be an overnight uh, overthrow. Um, you know, Netflix, it was just, uh, what, a year or two ago that Blockbuster filed for, for bankruptcy. You know, it takes time, and it will take a long time to, to take a Ticketmaster down. Um, but, we'll, uh, you know, it's, it's a business that's, you know, unfortunately also, with, you know, we, we love being the David and taking on the Goliath. It's part of the Silicon Valley way, and, and part of that is that it's, um, you know, that sometimes the Goliath undoes themselves. They merged with Ticketmaster. They've lost a lot of their talent. They've um, just haven't learned lessons. They don't have consumer internet people running those businesses. Um, so it, it, it makes it it makes our job a little easier. Um, but we feel a great sense of responsibility. We and and we're doing it the Silicon Valley way. We're, we're, we we want to build great product and technology and win, and on that means and not by backroom deals or relationships or anything else. Well, I want to leave some time for questions, folks. Uh, have here, so uh, we have questions right there on the way, on the back there. Yeah, well, yeah you and then and then you. <laughs> uh, great question. So it's 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 incremental. You 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 have to you know you need to take some risks and stretch yourself, uh, and you know we've we we certainly have. I don't think there's any kind of steadfast rule, uh, but you just know when, you know, you, you always have to extend yourself, and then you have to see, it, uh, see when, you're, when you've gone too far. Like, I think a few times we've gone too far, and, and we've had to pull the reins back. Because what happens is, is then you have, you know, what happens is product engineering has a roadmap that, that everyone's agreed upon and is working on, um, and you get waved in front of you these big sexy clients, you know, like we're going to do such and such an artist or such and such a, uh, and you know what that ends up doing is, as soon as you find yourself becoming, you know, having to do custom work or or really bend from your your core business, uh, that's you know that I would say that's the clearest litmus test to to be careful. I'm I'm very anti that, and we. We say no to more customers um, than you would imagine. We, we, you don't want to take on business you can't handle. You could do it. You could get away with it 20 years ago. You know, that's the Larry Ellison Oracle model was that you would sell something, tie them up in a multi-million-dollar-year contract, and you know, start working on something and realize they're totally they, that you know you're you're stuck with them. You're you're tied in, and you have no other options, and you've already invested millions of dollars. You can't do that today. Customers can switch right away. Um, so you don't want to overpromise, and you don't want to distract your engineering teams. Uh, gentleman right here. Yeah, what I, when I think of Ticketmaster, of course, I think of Microsoft, because uh, Paul Allen founded uh, Ticketmaster. My question is, do you know how they're going to come after you? Uh, I'm not ruling out a bomb in your car. I don't think it's likely, but there are other dirty tricks they can try. It, it was actually Fred Rosen was the, the founder of Ticketmaster, uh, and that uh, Paul Allen bought and, and sold Ticketmaster uh, to, I think, to, or that to IEC, to Barry Diller. Um, you know, they, we're, we're in a fortunate position of, of, you know, they're under scrutiny from the Justice Department. They're in kind of their sunset period. 
they did a disastrous merger with, you know, they were doing a billion three in revenue and, and three or four hundred million in EBITDA, and they merged with Live Nation, which is a money losing business saddled with debt. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I think it's a very different, um, a different case. There are a lot of challenges. You know, you've got the Live Nation business is a music promotion business and has artists under management, and then they have the ticketing business. Uh, so, you know, you have these these interesting dynamics of of in a lot of uh, cases, like you know, Madonna or whoever has this almost obligation to play these uh, these Ticketmaster venues. Um, so it's tough competition, and, and for lack of that, you again go the path of least resistance. And, and continue this great expansion in the long tail, continue in other verticals. Uh, but in time, you know, we're seeing we show results like 60% increase in ticket sales at Warp Tour, and the, you know, the best solution will, I, I believe, prevail in the long run. Again, Richard, there. Uh, how did you uh, get your first few customers at Eventbrite, and how did you get the word out after that? We, we actually went to friends that we knew held events and, and had them... Um, you know, had had them try it out, and then we we just very carefully, I mean, Google Analytics or whatever log analysis tool you you use, and and looking at those customer types uh, becomes heavily critical. So first, you know, you get your kind of alpha and beta customers signed up, and and really watch what they do, and then you see where people start finding you organically. We had. And, and that was a, that's a very important lesson. The acquisition side, you know, a lot of great products fail because they never figure out the acquisition side. And this is a, and in our events business, is a tough one uh, for for acquisition. And we, but but what happened is we we looked at, you know, again looking at other companies and really studying those companies. You know, the reason um, I, I invest and get involved in other companies, I I love to help other entrepreneurs, but I also learn so much in different practices. Uh, Jeremy Stoppelman from Yelp, he's an advisor, investor in Eventbrite, and a friend of mine. And we, um, you know, we loved what they did early on in terms of gaining SEO, uh, you know, indexing all the all the world's or the the country's businesses, and driving a lot of traffic through that. And then over time, incrementally building up the the brand. And that's how we had seen our business grow: as strong SEO, as we have all this unique content being published. Uh, event content content that people want to find and see and um, but then you know our other our PayPal moment of you know kind of seeing things happen on eBay uh, you know of, of PayPal taking hold on eBay was we started to see traffic come from Facebook a couple of years ago and said wow that's interesting uh, and what it was is that people naturally want to go to events with their friends or to conferences with their colleagues and and share those and and it, uh, so we said, let's figure out how to enhance this and built a lot of tools and means to make it easier to share events, and that in turn drove more traffic. And now Facebook is the number one source of traffic to our site. Uh, so again, that, that observational side is, is very important. You're setting me up right now. Event discovery is so important, and we don't do a great job. We have so much great content in our site, 
and you know I'll be the first to say that our discovery is broken. Like uh, so, you know, one of the the benefits of capital, and then also the momentum of having all this great inventory is now we need to to, to share that with the world, and that's one of the most common you know con comments I get is like uh, you know I wish I'd known about this Eventbrite event or. Uh, and, and so we're working very hard on, on how we now, to the you know, tens of millions of people that have used Eventbrite, that have used, attended events on Eventbrite, how do you begin to share uh, through algorithmic recommendations in the case of Netflix or friend recommendations or, um, you know, or the traditional ways by location, topic, or whatever. Uh, we really need to build out that consumer side. I would say that we started we, we started very heavily focused towards the organizer, the merchant, versus the attendee. And we have a lot of makeup to do on that side. We have a lot of work to do on that effort. But that's, we think that's a very exciting upside opportunity and something that our consumers very much want to do is discover events. You know, we think we've, we've done some, so, uh, we think they've done some interesting things. Um, and um, you know, I I I like the concept of it. It's uh, you know, is it Mark Hendrickson? I think he's you know he's done a lot of interesting things. I think it's hard to get scale with a business like Plancast. No, we um, you know, in fact, if you go into my tickets right now, if if you have an Eventbrite account, we we've kind of we've kind of buried our algorithmic and our friend recommendation pieces right now we've just been really working on on refining it before we kind of open it up to the world but you'll see friend recommendations um, you know more front and center coming soon one more question right back there yeah so uh, now that we're starting to see the IPOs opening up the markets opening up do you have a, a thought on whether that would be advantageous for Eventbrite or do you need that happening right now or it On the IPO front, it is a very uh, unique time again in Silicon Valley, like you know we just haven't seen before. And there's a lot of great business. There's a lot of businesses that were built in the '90s and last decade, you know, that are are um, you know ready and should go out. My personal opinion is that I think companies. I think it, it, it does companies. I'm, I'm very contrarian on this. That I, I actually feel companies should be going public earlier than later. Um, I think that you know a lot of the regulation has made it tougher, but I also think that there's a, a stubbornness or a status quo mindset in the valley that says that uh, you should wait a long time to go public because you have more autonomy. But I you know grew up at a time seeing you know Microsoft or Yahoo or or Cisco going public and and just quarter after quarter being very accountable, being very transparent. Uh, and, and that drives, and that really helped drive their businesses to, to great heights. Um, you know, certainly all those businesses have been now disrupted, you know, by, by other means. But I think it's very dangerous to stay private too long uh, because bad habits uh, can fester in the absence of shining the light in there. Uh, you know, we, we could potentially file as early as late next year. Um, you know, we'll, we'll see. We have to continue to perform you know, to very lofty expectations uh, to be able to do that. Uh, but we think, you know, the, the decision there is like we, we want to build a company that's around in 30 years, just like uh, 
for some reason, Ticketmaster has been around 30 years. We, we want to be around 30 years from now and, and uh, you know, we, we think being a public company is a natural part of that. All right, well, we're out of time. I'd like to thank Kevin for such an awesome discussion. Thank you very much.